Chapter Fifteen of the Straighten Street Affair by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter the Fifteenth, The Intruder. During the next few days, I remained idle in the hotel, not daring to go out while it was light, and leaving the surveillance upon De Gex and his friend to my old friend Hambledon. Each night we met at one café or another as we appointed, when he would report to me what he had witnessed during the day. It seemed that De Gex, or Monsieur Thibon, as he preferred to call himself, shared Suzo's private sitting-room, and, curiously enough, he also did not go out in the daytime. After all, that was not surprising, for such a great figure in international finance was probably well known in the Spanish capital. I had learnt that he had had a hand in the finances of Spain and had made some huge profits thereby. This man of mystery and intrigue was, I felt, there in Madrid with some malice aforethought. The very fact that he feared to be recognized was in itself sufficient proof. On the other hand, Suzo now went out in the daytime, going hither and thither as though transacting business for his friend. Hambledon had reported to me how he had sent three cipher telegrams by wireless from the Correo Central in the Cali Carreras, the first to London, the second on the following noon to an address in Paris, and the third at one o'clock in the morning to Moroni in Florence. The message to the latter was in figures, groups of five numerals as used by British Admiralty. Besides, he had also posted several letters in that big box at the chief post office marked Extranjero. The message to Moroni was highly suspicious. Harry Hamilton, as a solicitor, was of course a very acute person, and in addition he had very fortunately entered into the true spirit of the adventure. Though he longed to be back again at Richmond with his pretty fiancée, Nora Payton, yet the mystery of the whole affair had bewildered him, and he was as keen as I was myself in elucidating this strange enigma. Moroni was no doubt a tool in the hands of that quiet, sallow-faced man who, by reason of his colossal wealth and huge financial resources, could even make and unmake dynasties. Oswald de Gex, the man who, without nationality or patriotism, pulled a hundred financial strings both in Europe and America, held the sinister Dr. Moroni in his pay. I could discern that fact, just as I could see that the man Suzeau, who had so cleverly posed as an official of the Credit Lyonnais, was one of the many confidential agents of the mysterious de Gex. One evening I went by appointment to the Nuevo Club, to which I had been admitted as a foreign member, and in the smoking-room I awaited Hambledon. At last he came through the big swing doors, and approaching me, excitedly exclaimed, "'They've both gone out to Segovia to see the Countess de Chamartin. De Gex sent a wire early this morning.' and then, on receipt of a reply, they hired a car and drove out to keep the appointment. Charmentine was a Spanish financier. De Gex is one of international fame, a millionaire, I remarked. The wits of De Gex are perhaps pitted against the widow and the executors of the dead man. Don't you agree? Entirely, was Hamilton's reply. I follow the trend of your thoughts, Hugh. De Gex is the controlling influence of great events." but why should he seek to send you into an asylum for the insane? With the same motive that he endeavored to send into such an asylum poor Gabriel Tennyson, I said bitterly. In law we have an old adage which says, discover the motive and you also discover the miscreant, Harry remarked. I agreed, and, as much bewildered as he, exclaimed, 
well, as far as we can discern, there is something very underhand in this meeting. But the Count's widow is a cheery, easy-going person, despite her mournful black, and perhaps, after all, we may be upon a wrong scent. Exactly. De Gax may be attracted by her handsome niece, the Signorita Carmen Flores, eh? He may. But as the dead Count was a great financier, Oswald de Gex may be working in the interests of the widow, or to the contrary. To the contrary, said my friend without hesitation. Next morning Hamilton told me that de Gex and Suzo did not return to the Ritz until nearly one o'clock. Apparently they had dined and spent the evening in Segovia. On that same day at noon, my curiosity aroused, I took train to the old-world town with its wonderful cathedral, the Alcazar and the aqueduct built by Augustus, the largest piece of Roman work extent in Spain, rivaling as it does the walls of Tarragona. Without difficulty I discovered the fine country house of the Countess de Charmentine, situated high up on the broad tree-lined Paseo. She had never seen me, therefore I had no hesitation in idling in the vicinity, in order to catch sight of her or her niece their descriptions having been given to me by my friend Hambledon. Till it was growing dark I waited in vain, when suddenly I had a very narrow escape. A big, dusty grey limousine came rapidly up the hill and halted close to where I was standing. From it there alighted Gaston Suzot, who without hesitation entered the big iron gates and disappeared into the garden. Fortunately he was in such haste and so preoccupied that he did not notice me, Hence I crossed the road and hid behind a half-ruined wall where I had a good view of the car. About twenty minutes later he emerged again, and with him a young girl wearing a small toque and a rich sable coat. No second glance was needed to realize that it was the Signorita Carmen Flores, niece of the Countess. The elegant Frenchman held the door open politely for her, and after she had entered he got in beside her, whereupon the car turned and went down the hill and out of sight. It occurred to me that Suzot had come from Madrid to fetch her, and that surmise later proved to be correct, for on returning to the capital at ten o'clock Hamilton called at the Hotel de la Pikes, and as we sat upstairs in my bedroom he informed me that the young girl had arrived by car at the Ritz and had dined with de Gex and his companion. The Countess, who had apparently been in Madrid since the morning, and who had attended a charity matinee at the Comedia, had arrived at the Ritz a quarter of an hour before her niece. It was evident, therefore, that they were well known to de Gex, who, as I afterwards ascertained, had been a friend of the late Count. The four had dined privately together in Suzot's sitting-room, and, according to the information given to Hambledon by the concierge, a number of papers had been produced and examined immediately after the coffee had been served. I understand that the production of the papers had a most disturbing effect upon the Countess, Hambledon told me. She gave vent to a cry of amazement and afterwards burst into a fit of tears. At least that is what the waiter told the concierge. The Countess is very well known at the Ritz, for she moves in the court circle and is often at the smart functions so constantly held there. And the niece, I asked, she is certainly both smart and good-looking. I can discover but little concerning her. Harry replied. She is not known at all. She has apparently only gone to live with her aunt at Segovia since the Count's death. I wonder what was in the papers which so affected the lady, I remarked. De Gex evidently invited them to dinner in order to make some disclosure and to prove it by the production of documents. 
evidently replied my companion in any case the countess and her niece have just started to return for home the widow being very upset at what has been revealed to her to-night what can it have been i wonder could not the waiter ascertain the nature of the disclosure no i saw him myself afterwards and he explained that the documents in question were produced just after he had left the room he heard the countess utter a cry of dismay and when he again entered the room in pretense of clearing away the coffee-cups he found the lady in tears while her niece declared hotly in french i do not believe it i will never believe it a number of legal documents were spread out upon the table and de gex was holding one of them in his hand then the object of the visit of the precious pair seems to have been to disclose some hitherto well-guarded secret to the widow of the spanish financier eh yes my friend agreed it certainly seems so and then he rose and left downstairs in the palm court the gay crowd was pouring through to the restaurant for supper after the theatre for smart madrid is gay at night and there is as much dancing and fun there on a smaller scale of course as there is in the west end the pretty dresses the laughter the sibilant whispers and the claw-hammer coat are the same in madrid and bucharest as in london or paris or any other capital the hour of midnight is the same hour of relaxation when even judges smile after their day upon the bench and the blue stocking will laugh at a risky story so after harry had gone refusing to have supper with me lest somebody should notice us together i strolled about and selecting a table in a corner ate my solitary meal having had no dinner that day it was past midnight before i ascended in the lift to my room i undressed and while in bed i read the heraldo until i suppose i dropped off to sleep i knew nothing until later i was awakened by some slight movement in an instant i was seized by a strange intuition of danger and my wits became acute next second i was on the alert there had been three lights burning when i retired now there was but one i had bolted my door yet it was now slightly ajar i lay and listened outside i heard the hum of a car receding across the great square afterwards a church bell began to clang discordantly as they all do in spain the light was over the dressing-table in the corner and so shaded that the room was quite dim someone had been in my room i grasped my automatic pistol which i kept under the pillow and jumping out of bed crossed to the dressing-table where i had put my watch and bank-note case on taking them from my pocket as i did so i heard the click of an electric light switch and next instant the room was in darkness for a second i was nonplussed i knew however that i was not alone in the room so i dashed across the room to the door my pistol in my hand and gaining it before the intruder could escape turned on the lights before me stood revealed a tall thin-faced dark-haired man in his shirt and trousers who seeing my pistol at once put up his hands crying in spanish ah no no it is a mistake holy madonna i have mistaken the room i thought my friend pedro was here a thousand apologies senor a thousand apologies but my door was bolted how did you get in i demanded fiercely no senor it was not bolted i have been taken very unwell i was seeking my friend pedro he stammered pale and frightened come to my room and i will show you my papers to prove that i am no thief but a well-known advocate of borgas i told him roughly to turn his face to the wall while i went through his belongings to satisfy myself that nothing had been stolen all seemed in order and the fellow's explanation seemed to be quite feasible 
save for the fact that I distinctly remembered bolting the door. Nevertheless, I began to wonder whether I had not misjudged him. "'Come along to my room, signor,' he urged. "'I will show you my identity papers. I have to offer you a thousand apologies.' I followed him to a room near the end of the corridor, where he quickly produced documents and papers showing that his name was Juan Salavera, an advocate who lived in the Calle de Vittoria in Borgos. He showed me the portrait of his wife and child which he carried in his wallet, and a small painted miniature of his mother, and other proofs of his integrity, including a case well filled with notes. "'I trust, signor, that you will no longer accuse me of being a thief,' he said. "'Our encounter would have been distinctly amusing had we not so frightened each other as we have done.' I laughed, for I felt convinced that he was a respectable person, and I really began to feel uncomfortable. Indeed, I muttered an apology for my rather rough behavior, and at the same time I noticed upon the left side of his neck a deep scar probably left by an abscess. My dear signor, it was quite forgivable in the circumstances, he declared, offering me a cigarette and taking one himself. I had supper at a restaurant after the theater tonight and ate something which had disagreed with me. Half an hour ago I felt faint, so I rose and went to find my friend Pedro Espada, who came with me from Borgos, and I entered your room in mistake. He must be in the room next yours. "'Shall we seek him?' I asked. "'No, I feel much better now. Thanks,' was his reply. "'The fright has chased away all faintness. Besides, we should have to go down to the office and ascertain in which room he really is. I shall be all right now,' he assured me. He went on to say that he had come to Madrid in connection with a large estate in Granada, to which a client of his had laid claim. "'I shall be here for a week at least, therefore I hope you will give me the pleasure of spending an evening with Pedro and myself. We will dine at a restaurant and go to one of the variety theatres afterwards.' I thanked him, and, laughing at our encounter, we parted quite good friends. On returning to my room I examined the bolt, and found that the screws of the brass socket had been forced from the woodwork, and it was lying on the floor. That fact caused suspicion to again arise in my mind. Surely considerable force must have been used to break away the socket from the woodwork. Yet I had heard nothing. However, I returned to bed, and leaving the lights on I reflected upon the strange episode. The fellow's excuse was quite a legitimate one, yet I could not put from myself the fact that the door had been forced. By whom, if not by him? and yet he was so cool it seemed impossible that he was a thief whom I had caught red-handed. After half an hour I rose again and thoroughly examined the bolt, when my suspicion was increased by a strange discovery. In my absence the socket of the bolt had been removed, the screw-holes enlarged and filled up with bread kneaded into a paste. Into this the screws had been placed so that although I had bolted the door I could not secure it, for the smallest pressure from outside would break the fastening from the woodwork. The dodge was one often practiced by hotel thieves, but what proof had I that the lawyer from Borgos had prepared that bolt? I had no means of knowing when the screws had been rendered unstable or by whom. It might have been done even before I had occupied that room, for the paste was hard and crumbling. Nevertheless, the fact remained that my door had been prepared for a midnight theft and I had found a stranger in my room. So with a resolve to make further inquiry next morning, I threw myself down and slept. I must have been tired and overwrought, for it was past nine o'clock when I awoke and drew up the blinds. Then, as I crossed to ring the bell for my coffee and hot water, 
I made a very curious discovery. End of chapter 15. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.